But this morning, we are just looking at the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, it's, it's a very direct commandment, seemingly so, but there's a lot there. Let me open with prayer before we really dive into it. Thank you again, Father, for the privilege that we have to spend this time this morning. Thank you for your word, for the things that you're teaching me. Father, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would be here with us. And Father, that you would speak, that you would speak clearly. Father, help us to have hearts that are open to hear what you would have for us to hear and, and to live out, Father, even this morning. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've come across an unusual trend that you may, have, may or may not have heard about. Um, over the past decade, it seems like every year or two, there's a group that files some high-profile lawsuit on behalf of some animal claiming to represent the rights of that animal. Let me give you a couple examples. Several years ago, there was a McKay monkey who lived in the islands, an island on Indonesia, and he became famous for uh, picking up a camera and taking some selfies. And, uh, and he's got this big tooth brin, and I mean, it just became not only very famous, but as the picture was spread worldwide, it became very valuable. And so a few years later, a group of lawyers from PETA filed a lawsuit arguing that since the monkey took the picture, he should have legal ownership to the copyright of the pictures and have resource to the, the money that it had made. Well, that's one lawsuit. Another one that was just filed, I think, last year was another group of lawyers in New York City on behalf of Happy the Elephant, who lives in New York City Zoo. And uh, they argued that their client, Happy, uh, should be considered a person and should have the all the rights that come with legal personhood. Now, you hear of these cases and you think, okay, how do we respond to these? Fortunately, you know, none of them have gained traction in the court, and none of them have won. But what's interesting is that polls show that there's a good number of Americans that think that animals should have all the rights of personhood of other people. So what do you think of that? And even if you're thinking, well, that's kind of crazy, well, why is it crazy? Why is it wrong? See, how would you respond to someone who would say, well, you know, doing things like this, that recognizing the personhood of animals would make us a more humane society. And, uh, well, well, would it make us more humane or would it make it less? What if I suggested that the primary impact of doing that wouldn't be to increase the rights of animals, but would actually be to decrease the rights of many humans? But we're looking at the Sixth Commandment, and again, the commandment is given in Exodus. It's very direct. It seems to you know, say right there what it means. You shall not murder. And uh, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, and I want to come back to it and dig even deeper. And again, we're seeing that it's, this commandment, it's not just teaching a moral principle. It's, it's teaching this foundational principle to our culture. And what I think we're going to even see today is that some of the biggest controversies of our time are rooted in the fact that we've walked away from these foundational principles. So let me start by giving a brief overview of the Sixth Commandment. Some of these things are things that we talked about two weeks ago, and I'll just kind of briefly review. And um, if you want to go deeper, go back. And if you weren't here, you can, that's available online from two weeks ago. You know, one of the ideas that we have constantly stressed throughout our series on the Ten Commandments is that these aren't just moral principles that God gives us, moral laws that God gives us to live by. They're that, but they're far more than that. There are these deep foundational principles of truth that God has given us to build as a foundation block for our culture and for society, even for our own lives. And, and to understand this, we can't just stop at looking at the moral law. We have to dig deeper and we have to say, okay, what is that principle? 
Now, last week or, or two weeks ago, we started looking at this and we looked at, first of all, what is the law? What is the substance? What is it teaching us? And, and we saw that it's telling us a, a, a prohibiting murder. Now, when you know, God spoke this and, and literally spoke these, these truths into existence and in giving the Ten Commandments, uh, he could have used multiple words for killing. And the most general word for killing just means the idea of taking the life of another person. And that's not the word that God chose to use here. Instead, he uses a very specific word, a word that is better translated murder. It means the intentional and unlawful taking of a human life. So it's not that killing of anything in all cases are wrong. There's, there's a difference between that and murder. And it's, it's thou shall not murder. And not only that, but then we saw that it's not just even that he's calling us not to murder, but especially when we saw Jesus teaching on this, he says it's, there's a heart issue behind it. We can be innocent of the action of murder and still be guilty of the heart issue behind it. See, Jesus taught that the heart issue behind murder is anger. It's not that it's wrong to get angry. We're all going to get angry at other people from period, time to time. It's natural. But when we hold on to our anger, when we don't resolve it, what happens is that we're letting that anger grow in us like a cancer that in time will can consume us. And anger is an attitude that is left unchecked could literally drive people to murder. Look at what Jesus said. You've heard it said uh, uh, to those of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. And I think what Jesus is saying here is you've heard it said that this is what God was teaching, don't murder. And he's saying, well, okay, well, I'm God, so I'm gonna tell you what I really meant beyond that was something that goes even deeper. And he says, okay, now, what's the problem? Is that the problem is, is that we can, again, not, be, not you know, be innocent of that, but then miss the heart attitude. He continues. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. See, it's not just a matter of what we've done. If we have this heart attitude of anger that we let go unchecked, then we have the heart attitude that literally drives a murderous spirit. And not only that, he continues, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And what he's saying here is that it's not even that we're angry, but then how does our anger express itself? And we may have the self-control where we're not actually going out and killing somebody, but you know what it expresses itself is in our words. And when we go out and we attack people and attack their self-worth, we attack their reputation by our words, in reality, we're taking a bit of life from them. We're taking a little bit of their dignity away from them. And that's against the spirit of what murder is all about. Now, why is that wrong? And we saw again last, last time that the underlying foundation between this, behind the whole commandment, is the value of human life, the unique value of human life. Why is murder wrong? Why is it that God condemns the unlawful killing of another human being, but he doesn't condemn the killing of animals? In fact, he explicitly allows it for things like food. But look at the person next to you. You look at him, and what's unique about him or her? What makes that person different than the monkey that was able to take pictures of himself? And if you're looking at especially your spouse, and you're saying, oh, not that different. No, don't tell them that. You know, it's just, <laughs> what makes them different? Or, or how are they different than an elephant like Happy, who is socialized and forms family groups and See, many people will argue that personhood is something that, is that we see in animals. Why? Because they show some of the intelligence of human, you know, human intelligence. They show some of the same emotions. They show the ability to form relationships. But if that's the case, what if you had somebody that was intellectually uh, uh, limited? 
and they had less intelligence than a smart animal, does that make them a non-person? What if they're socially limited? Did that mean that they're not a person, that, they shouldn't, that an animal is more, of greater value than them? You see, what we need to realize is the Bible is clear on this. What sets apart humanity from the rest of the world kingdom is that we are created by God and given and created in God's image and given an eternal soul. This is something that is taught by God in the very beginning of the Bible, in the very, very beginning of creation, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Look what it, we're told. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sea. I want you to see, man is in our image and because of that, they have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over, uh, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are different. We are different than everything else. We are created in God's image. We have this eternal soul and we have this incredible worth and value not based on anything that we've done. That means that every person has equal worth and value regardless of their race, regardless of their background, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their ability or disability, regardless of their IQ or what they contribute to society or any other criteria. So even if someone is mentally enabled or if they're unborn and undeveloped and hidden in their mother's womb, all human beings are made in the image of God and have equal value. See, many in our culture today deny the whole idea of creation. And so because we're not created in the image of God, therefore we don't have God's, God's image. And so what's the basis of human worth? What's the base, basis of human rights? And the reality is there is none. See, if we're just the result of evolution, then how are we different substantially from a smart monkey or a smart elephant? Let me even give you an example of some of this thinking. There's a man named Peter Singer who's a well-known uh, philosopher that teaches at Princeton University, and specifically he teaches moral philosophy. So here's a guy teaching college students about what's right, what's morally true. He's a materialist who believes in evolution. We're not created by God, so therefore, we're just the result of chance. Now, as a result, his conclusions are, and here's again, this is a well-known teacher, that some humans actually possess less capacity than some animals. That you look at that and you say his conclusion is some animals should be considered persons before people. And so he takes this not only in supporting abortion, but he says that in many cases, infanticide should be illegal. So that if you have a child and that child shows that they lack certain capacities, well, the right thing to do is just kill them. Now, this is someone who argues for animal rights. And he has argued explicitly that some toddlers should be seen as less of persons than some really intelligent pigs. That's the thinking, that's the issue. Now, the fact is, is that if you walk away from the image of God, that's what we're left with. And that's why we have such confusion on so many issues. The fact is, though, that we are created by God, and we are not only created, but we are then given God's image, and we have incredible worth and value. Genesis 9 6 tells us, why is murder wrong? Because we are created in God's image, explicitly. And we look at that, and we say, okay, that's the, the overview of this. And, but then we say, okay, well, how is this a foundational principle that should guide our, our thinking, our lives, our culture? And you might be thinking, well, the more principle is the value of human life. Well, that's true. We are created in God's image. Each life has tremendous value. But let me go even a little deeper. 
You see, I think when, if I were to go out and ask a bunch of people, you know, when you think about what the Bible teaches about morality, what do you think, what do you think of the Bible's teaching? How do you sum it up? In my experience, most people would start by, by rules. They would start by telling us the things that you can't do, the things that the Bible says are wrong. And we're going to refer to that as negative morality, rules-based morality. That's all about the don'ts. Now, here's what we've got to realize. When we focus on rules, what, that's focused on controlling our behavior. It's about, it's about what we do. Now, the problem is that if we focus on rules, I can try to use self-control to shape my behavior and not change at all who I really am. I can still be a really nasty person that just holds my nastiness back. When you look at the Bible and the Bible's teaching on morality, what you find is that the real focus of God's call on us is there are the, there are the negatives, but the real focus is on what I'm going to call positive morality. It's on not just what we don't do, but what we do, the righteousness of our lives. And when we focus on what we do, you realize that it's not just about what we do, it's about who we are. See, it's not just focused on our behavior, it's focused on changing our character and changing, you know, literally who we are as a person. Let me give you an example. We're going to come to this in about three weeks. We have one of the commandments that talk about don't bear false witness, don't lie, all right? Now, if I focus on the negative of that commandment, the negative is, okay, don't lie. Now, do you know people that don't lie that are still dishonest and deceptive people? I can legally avoid lying and still be totally deceptive and lead you totally astray. Be a very dishonest person. Now, on the positive is what is the positive morality? Be truthful. Tell the truth. Be truthful in character. If I have truthful character, I'm not going to lie. But the fact is, it's a much, much higher standard. And that's what God calls us to. Now, let's go to the sixth commandment. When we look at this, what is the positive commandment? What is God calling us not only not to do, don't murder, but what is he calling us to do? Another way of asking it is, what is the opposite of murder? The fact is, I could keep the, the, the moral law and not murder anyone and still be a really nasty and even abusive person, constantly devaluing other people. See, God's concerned about more than that. Let's even use it in practice. Let's say, okay, I go for an interview somewhere and somebody is meeting me at this interview, and they say, well, tell me about yourself. I'm really trying to get to know who you are, your, your values and your character. Tell me what defines you. And if I sit back and smile and say, well, I've never murdered anyone, how impressed do you think the interviewer is going to be? And if they come back and they say, well, is there anything else? And I respond, hey, listen, I've never murdered anyone. What else would you want? I don't think they're going to be that impressed. In fact, I'll come back and say, if we have any like, single, single women here, and you start to date someone, and you go out on the date, and he starts bragging about how good he is, and he says, man, I'm just a good moral person. I've never murdered anyone. You know, run, don't, don't walk, run from that guy. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. So again, God's calling us to do more than just not murder. So what's the positive command? What's the opposite of murder? Again, the negative is obvious. Don't take a human life. But what's the opposite? And you might think, well, to protect human life. Well, that's true. That's moving in the right direction. But I think there's even more there. See, to answer that question, let's go back and ask another question. What makes murder wrong? Why is murder wrong? We touched on that a moment ago. And let's go back to that. The foundational truth that makes it wrong is the humanity's identity and worth. That we are created in God's image. 
that we have incredible worth and value because of that. Now, murder is wrong because it's taking away from that, it's denying that. But when we look at that and say, if this foundational truth is we're created in God's image with an eternal soul, then what is the positive? How do we live that out positively? If it's not taking away by murdering, it's instead seeing the value that God has placed on each person who, is bear, who bears his image and treating them as that valuable. It's literally giving them life by acts of kindness, by acts of love that are reflective of the person's value. So even if we think about two weeks ago, we talked about one of the principles, the heart behind it is unforgiveness. Now let's even go back and apply this positive attitude to this idea of unforgiveness. Okay, why is unforgiveness wrong? Because it's, it denies the principle of the incredible value and worth that you have as a person in the image of God. Because if I hold on to anger, if I'm unwilling to forgive another person, what I'm saying is whatever you did to me, However you upset me is of more importance, is greater value than your value as a human being. So I'm going to hold on to the bigger weight, the more important thing, how I've been wronged. You see, it's missing this idea that, no, the greater thing is treat the person with value. That's why we forgive. That's why we do it. Now, when we think about this, we've got to realize, that, but they don't deserve it. They don't, you don't know what they've done. And Okay, well, let's go back. If our... The foundational idea is that we're created in God's image. We've got to realize that, therefore, all of our value and all of our rights come from God. They don't come from what we do. We don't come from the fact that we've earned it. See, from an evolutionary standpoint, people look at this and they say that your value is determined by, okay, what have you done? It's the externals, and are you, you know, are you worthwhile? Are you contributing society? But no, our value is given by God, not earned in any way. And likewise, our rights are given by God. Even from a standpoint, there's a debate now about even when we understand government, you know, that, that well, government gives rights. No, government doesn't give rights. The, the rights are given by God, and a good government recognizes the rights that have been given to us by God. They don't give them, because if they give them, they can take them away. The founders understood this, and it's put in the Declaration of Independence. Look what they said. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And being created, it's implied in the image of God, they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Amongst these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's rooted in this foundational truth. And not only do we recognize that we have these rights, but again, then we have worth and that we see each person of being incredibly valuable, incredibly worthwhile, and treat them as they deserve. C.S. Lewis understood this, and he talked about this idea in a, in a famous sermon that was later included in a book. Look what he says. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most interesting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, would be strong, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else such a horror and a corruption, since if you met it, now met, if at all, only in a nightmare. Basically saying we're eternal souls, that one day we're going to either be in heaven and we're going to be this incredible thing that you're going to want to worship, or we're going to be in hell and we're going to be hideous. He continues, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, and it is with the awe and this, and this uh, circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendship, all loves, all play, all politics, 
There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours the life of a gnat. He's saying, when you think of the history of our country and the, all these great things, they're nothing compared to the value and worth of the one eternal soul. And that we relate to each other with that understanding. If we really understand what it means, what we understand is that we're going to value all life. Every person, regardless of age or state of development or what the person contributes to society. But it's not only saying, okay, don't take it away because we don't murder, but we hold it up. And here's the problem, is we can understand that, but it goes against our nature because our nature is, even as followers of Christ, we forget this and we start to not see the internal value as being an image bearer of God, but we, we look at externals. See, this isn't a new problem. If you look throughout all human history, people have judged on external factors, on, on wealth and position, on race and culture and all these things. And even as followers of Christ, it's not a new problem. You see in the New Testament, numerous times, God confronting the church on the fact that they had let this, this problem seep into the church and wrongly define their understanding of cer certain things. In fact, look, let me look at, uh, show you in Genesis, or um, James, I'm sorry, Genesis, James chapter 2, and you see God confronting this through James. James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, what, what I want you to see here is when he talks about this, he says, first of all, show no partiality. He literally, you could literally translate it, don't judge by the face. We, we would use in our terms, don't judge on face value. Don't judge on externals. This is something that is going to be tempting to do as a church. We should never fall into it. We should totally work against that. And why is it? Well, look what it says. Because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Because we, we come into church and we recognize his glory. His glory is majesty, his, his wonder. The core issue is understanding Jesus' glory. And not only that, but then each person created in his image bears something of that glory. So he illustrates this problem. Look at the next verse. If a man uh, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes come into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What he's saying is we should come in and be overwhelmed by the God's glory, but what happens is that if you have a wealthy person that comes in and, and it says, you know, literally shining clothes, glorious clothes, and you have a poor man that's got shabby, that you know, just doesn't shine at all, and you pay attention to him, the fact is you've lost sight of the ultimate truth, which is the glory of God and the glory that each person has as someone who's created in God's image. Listen, if God's glory, if we think of it in terms of lights, and God's glory is the sun, what glory does anybody bring that's going to add or take away from that? And not only that, but we are then created in God's glory. We reflect that, and that glory is brighter than anything we can do. Let me even illustrate it this way. If you think in, in terms of here's a bright light, if you kind of, I'm shining right in your eyes, you know, it's, you know, you know Rob's kind of like, oh man, I sat in the wrong place today. But if you look at the brightness of this light, it's a bright light. Now, let's contrast it to a little light that I have here. How does that match up? You look at that and you say, the fact is that if I were in a dark place and I turned this light on, it would probably look kind of bright. In darkness, you would notice it. In darkness, it would stand out. But when I stand up against this, 
it's totally lost. Well, if Christ is the Son, God's the Son, He's created us in a glory, so we have this reflective glory that's brighter than anything we can imagine. And what James is saying, what the Bible teaches, when we go into church, we should look at this and be overwhelmed by the glory. And if we come in and we have somebody that they look nice or they're, you know, they're, they're the right group or the right race or they, whatever it would be, and we're suddenly amazed by that, and we say, oh, look at that. You know what the problem is? Anytime we are drawn toward this, it's because we lost sight of that. Anytime we're impressed by anything or, or you know, we make little of the value of anything, that, you know, any external factor, the fact is the only way that we're going to be impressed by a little light is that we've lost sight of the big light. And what is the big light? We are created in God's glory. Each one of us are, are, are image bearers of God. Now, how do you apply that? Rob's going to be thank, thankful for turning off the light. We've got a lot of issues in our culture today. One of the ones that I think this struggles with most right now is, is race. Now, I'm going to state a couple things even before I go. I'll be clear. I understand that our country has a terrible history on the issue of race that often includes the justification of great evils. I'm not denying that there are legitimate concerns even to this day. I also want to acknowledge that I'm touching on this this morning, and I wish I had more time this morning to get into questions and discussion, and, and, and we're going to do that this evening. I hope that you'll please join us this evening. If you struggle with this at all, please come back. We're going to have questions and answers and discussion. We want to give you the opportunity, whatever you think about this position, we really want to hear that thought. Even if you want to answer, you know, send in questions in advance so that we make sure we put them at the top of what we're dealing with tonight, you can just text in questions to 644 or uh, 330-644-6121. Text a question, promise you we're going to deal with it tonight. But that being said, what I want to realize is that when we look at this issue, the principle is we are created in God's image. We bear this light. We bear his, his glory that shines in us. And the fact is, is that if we understand this, it should be, and it has throughout history been the thing that, is, that has overwhelmed all divisions of, of race, of culture, of class, all things, because this is not a new problem. Look at what Paul says about it in Colossians chapter 3. Here in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, people that hated each other, that were divided, circumcised and uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but in Christ, Christ is all and in all. Basically, he's saying, once we come into the church and we understand this, there is no more division. There were divisions before, but there is no division. Why? Because Christ is in all. He's in us. He's the thing that defines us. And not only in that, that light's so bright, we don't even notice anything else. There's nothing that you can do to add to the brightness, nor nothing you can do to take it away. Because the gospel truth is that our worth is completely in God. It's not about even goodness and keeping rules. Or, in fact, what is the gospel? It's understanding that all our worth comes from God and our relationship, we're adopted by God. Why? Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done for us. We come and we bring our brokenness. We come and bring our misery, you know, misery our, our unworthiness. That's what it says in, in, in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of the result of works so that no one can boast. By grace through faith, nothing. We don't bring anything to it other than our brokenness and our need. And if we understand that, the more that we bring our brokenness, the more Christ shines in us and through us. And here's what we need to realize. As we look at these issues, 
any time that we focus on anything other than Christ, whether it be wealth or contribution, whether it be popularity, or even when we talk about race as being a defining identity that, that starts where we're at, any time we do that, the real effect is it always takes away from our true and greatest worth and value as being an image bearer of, of Christ. Anytime that you start talking about this of primary importance, you're getting your eyes off of that. Now, it might be seem wise by our world standards or even feel right and compassionate, but I believe that this is this foundational truth that God, of God that, that is foundational for building of a culture. And any time that we move away from this foundational truth, the result is always disastrous. So again, we're going to look at that more tonight. But, but I hope that you see this foundational idea. Then, then we kind of wrap this up then. Okay, now what does it mean to, look to, to live it out, though? How do, we, how do we come back and live out this moral truth? Not just the negative command that we're not killing, but this positive. Again, the command isn't just about not murdering but it's treating each other with the value that, that, they have, that each person has as an image bearer of God. I'm, I'm going to read this quickly, so I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I'm gonna, let's go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, even if you have Bibles, you could join me there. Matthew 25, verse 31. Look at what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from, sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, what was the objection of the second group? They're saying, Jesus, when did we see you? Jesus, how did we ignore you? If we had known it was you, we would have done it. Why? Because we know you're important. We know you're valuable. Jesus, if it were somebody important and valuable like you, of course we would have ministered to you. I want you to realize Jesus doesn't condemn them because they in any way were mean or mistreated, these people. The issue is they ignored them. They were apathetic. Why? Because they didn't see them as valuable they weren't important. See, what Jesus is calling us to is not only just the behavior, but he's saying, okay, this is why. He's trying to drive into us. This is why we treat people differently. The second group didn't see them as valuable. The first did. What does he say? I will say to you, as you did it, and then one of the least of these brothers, you did it unto me. Here's what we need to realize. Why are they the least? Because from the externals, they bring nothing to the table. 
they don't seem to be valuable. And what Jesus is saying is when you did it unto me, you know what I think he's not saying? He's not saying, look at the needy people and pretend they're me. Look at the people that have no value and pretend they have value. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, look at the, the, the least of these and recognize they're created in my image. So part of me is there. So treat them as you would treat me because they are my image bearers. They bear something of my value. They bear something of my glory and they deserve to be treated like me. They're that valuable. They're that important. And the problem is when we forget that and we look at them as the least of these that are least because they have nothing to offer, what's happened is that we're focused just on this little light and we've lost total, lost total sight of the true identity and value and purpose that we have as one who's created in God's image. See, God wants us to be able to see his glorious image in each person, to see that's what makes them valuable. And because that's what makes them valuable, there's nothing that will add to it, and there's nothing that can take it away. And he wants us not only to see that, but then he also wants us to honor that image in the way that we treat them. We literally treat each person as if their importance is the same importance of Jesus, because there is image bearers, they are that important. And nothing can take that away. My friends, if we figure that out, you know, suddenly we realize that, that this, I mean, it's, it's challenging. It's hard. And it's a whole lot easier just to say, I don't kill anybody. I'm good. But to recognize that God calls us this, this radical view of humanity that we see each person with this kind of value, we treat them in this way, it not only changes what we do, it changes who we are. It changes the way that we view our world. And if our culture got this again, do you see how it changes our culture? Do you see how it solves discussions and debates that people are struggling with now? Friends, I, I don't think any of us can we say, okay, we've got it. I've totally lived in that. I don't think any of us totally get it. But you know what? I hope and pray that by God's grace that we're increasingly seeing people, each one is being incredibly valuable as people that are created in the image of of God, that we not only want to protect life, but we want to give life as we treat even the least of these as being as valuable, as important as Jesus, because they are, they're his image bearers.